0: So, as we consider what what I've called the rise and fall of Julian, Julian II, or Julian the Apostate, what does apostate mean? We talk about that sometimes with regard to churches, most often, to say that's an apostate church, Um, but not quite as often with reference to just people. So, what is apostasy in one who is an apostate? Does that word ring, you know, draw on your mind? Yes? Someone who has departed from orthodoxy. Okay, so someone who has departed. Right, that's that's kind of the, the nature of someone or or an organization of someone's, right? A church uh, or an organization. Apostates left their original commitments. They've they've apostatized. They've departed. They've they've left the communion. So is that a is that similar to uh, atheist or any other good word like that? I don't think so. Okay. I think apo is the prefix. But you're, you're on, so what Bill's asking is so, oftentimes there's A in front of something. In Greek, it's called an alpha privative. It means it, it takes away what's being said. So an atheist is one who doesn't believe in gods and so on. Uh, amoral is something that's not moral one way or another. Not immoral, which would be a negative moral, right, bad. But amoral is not moral. So anyway, that's that kind of thing. But this one is oppo, and I don't know, um, as far as that, stasis is usually stance, so away from the stance is the kind of etymological, I think, um, meaning... So, we're going to look at an emperor, an emperor of Rome, who followed Emperor Constantine. We talked about his role and some of his work last week, and I'll review that quickly. Um, who wanted to essentially undo everything that not only Constantine had done, but his sons in the intervening probably three decades of, of, uh, of imperial work, that is work of the empire, which is, which is slowly becoming more and more Christian, and less and less pagan until Julian. He wants to reverse all of that and make it, nope, let's get back to the original gods, the original Roman worship, and get rid of these atheists, uh, the Christians, who he calls Galileans. Uh, So that's, that's one of his handles, one of his titles for the Christians is the Galileans, of course after Jesus from Galilee. But part of the point of calling them Galileans is saying they're just hicks. They're out there from the provinces. They're provincial hicks. Who cares what they think? Uh, we're Romans and we're in Constantinople and these other things. So that's the idea there. So let's move into it uh, just with a very quick review. Number one, because I like to get through this thing, and I think we can. Review of the first Christian emperor of Rome. Now remember that the Roman Empire, led by an emperor, was decidedly not Christian. Okay, from, from AD 64. I mean, before that it was decidedly not Christian too. It's, it's, uh, it's based upon the Roman gods and Roman worship and Roman traditions, not Christian ones, not Old Testament ones from, from, the, from Israel, but what we call pagan ones, ones that are of their own, non-Christian and uh, non-biblical. But Constantine converts to Christianity, and in him, as now a Roman emperor, which, by the way, is probably about the craziest thing anyone could offer, in the first three centuries of the church. Hey, guess what? The emperor is going to be Christian in the empire too. Everyone would say, hey, yeah, sure. Right, that's crazy. Pike dream stuff. Smoke in the wind. Right? But then God did it. He converts the emperor. And then in, in him, this amazing kind of transformation that goes on for good and ill. The Edict of Milan. I don't think I mentioned by name last week. Maybe I did. Um, is where in 313, the year after Constantine wins this great battle under Christian signs and so on, he comes and says, now Christianity is no longer illegal. Okay, so you're, you're no longer an outlaw in the Roman Empire if you're a Christian. You're free to pre- practice Christianity within the Roman Empire. It's a religio licita. It's a legal religion. Where for the 250 years prior, it was illegal okay, to be a Christian meant to be a Roman Outlaw, that didn't always mean you were persecuted, but it always meant there's a potential for that. There's always the potential for a few persecutions to arise, especially as we get closer and closer to Constantine. It kind of ramps up and ramps up, like we discussed last week. So the Edict of Milan in 313 made it so Christianity was legal in the Roman Empire. The Council of Nicaea in 325, near 12 years later, is impossible to overstate how important that is to the history of the Christian Church. Trinitarian controversy, and controversy over the Arians, more on that later. And then finally, the founding of Constantinople, which of course was a town before that, called Byzantium. Uh, Constantine just went there, remade everything, and made this thing a Christian city. Rome is no kind of Christian city. Rome is a pagan city for centuries yet, for a couple hundred years yet. Run by the, the elites, the decuria, they call them the, the landed aristocratic families of Rome, who are decidedly not Christian. So, the Christian folks are on the other side of the Tiber, right, in the place that's going to be called Vatican later. Um, I think it's Illyricum, is what they call it at the time. But anyway, yeah, the Pope, this, this head of the church, whatever that is over there, nobody in Rome cares about that. Okay? It's a pagan city. Constantinople is a Christian city. From the beginning, it's meant to be a Christian city. Christian church is not pagan worship, Christian worship in this city. It's a Christian city. That's important, and Constantine, of course, bears his name. It's the city of Constantine, Constantinople. Uh, so that's, you know, he, that, they open up shop. There's this grand opening of Constantinople in 3.30. Um, not very long before Constantine himself dies. Okay. Pretty quickly here, number two as well. And then I'll pause for questions. The church between Constantine and his, his death. Okay, so he dies and he's, you know, he's the great emperor and his, his sons and stuff kind of jogged for power. There's a bunch of mess that I won't get into as far as all that goes. Um, the first hash mark there, hashtag... Uh, if that's the right word, dash. Um, imperial sponsorship of apostolic churches and Nicene doctrine. That is, the emperor and the power of the empire, the Roman Empire, is behind apostolic churches and their bishops. So, those are ones particularly that trace their roots back to the apostolic ministries, right? The Apostle Paul or other apostles that go around founding churches. Um, and they, they become central to what Constantine's doing in the church and then the growth of the church. Uh, but also Nicene doctrine, okay, so what other doctrine would there be besides Nicene doctrine in this in this period? what's what's Nicaea up against Arianism. in particular, right, and Arianism in particular is and there are a number of problems, but Arianism is like what Jehovah's witnesses will teach today, very simple, uh, very similar, although um, usually the ancient version is far more complex and involved in nuance than the modern versions are, it turns out. They're just better, deeper thinkers then, than the J-dubs can, can you know, produce today. Anyway, they would say that Jesus, or the Son of God, was the first created being. Is not of the same substance as the Father, but a similar substance as the Father. So we don't have the Trinitarian reality of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one essence, one being in three persons. We have different beings. Is okay, so we don't have Trinitarianism and Arianism, and that's what the uh, Nicene Council is all about, and what Nicene Doctrine is all about, the Nicene Creed. And we might say, oh, from 525 on, great, that was settled, not hardly. right? So th- through the whole rest of the 4th century, uh, Arianism is flowering all around the Roman Empire, and it's a major battle, it's a, it's the, it's a scourge of the, of the church more than that a little later, I guess, down there, just, just below. Okay, the growth, uh, this is interesting, but I'll say it very quickly. The church itself grows in episcopacy, that is to say the shape of the order of the church, which is definitely around bishops and the rule of bishops, and that's, that's something that develops in the church in these, in these early centuries that is particularly important, important to Constantine, important to, the, to his reforms, and important to Julian as we get there as well. The church grew in art. We can see that in the catacombs. We can see that in various other places of, of the artwork, especially when it gets into the 4th century. There's a flourishing of Christian art. That's important, and sculpture and things like that, of letters. Like, in the ancient Roman world, if you, if you wrote and spoke Koine Greek, you were an uneducated rube, and no one listened to you. You had to speak this Atticized Greek, and, uh, and there's a way in which you'd speak that the elites would take you seriously if you were rigorously educated and spoke like it. If you didn't speak like it, get out of town. And so the vast bulk of Christians for the first couple centuries didn't have that kind of education but eventually some of them did, right? And you see, you see Christians moving into uh, academic posts and, and able to write and, and, and argue with the pagans, right? Argue with the Greeks, not just the Jews, but even with the Greeks and the philosophers, and you get this kind of development of Christian scholarship, and uh, particularly moving into Constantine's time and beyond. Uh, that's why I say art and letters, but also philanthropy. What is philanthropy? Yeah, giving to people, it's the love of people, uh, helping people, right? Uh, the Christian church is famous in the ancient world for helping people, not only for picking up like abandoned babies, for famous that you know th- you think about that for abortion issues, but helping the poor, feeding the poor, burying the poor, even paupers. They say no, they need to be buried. That's a cr- I tell you, burying the dead is something so deeply Christian that you can't get away from it until the modern era where it's like oh no, we just burn our dead, thanks. But Christians would have balked at that, to say the least, um, through the long, long centuries, say, so, that no, they even bury the transients. Say, this guy died on the side of the road. Well, the Christians will bury him. The pagans would just throw him out or burn him or something like that, but the Christians took care of him. Anyway, there's all that going on within the Christian church as it grows, and then the last thing is the scourge of Arianism. It is a major trial for the, this, you know, these centuries of the church to deal with this heresy as it runs wild. Any quick questions? That's all background. To Julian now. okay. So, they get the, the full name, this full Roman name, Flavius Claudius Julianus. You can see his dates there, 331 to 363. So, he died when he was how old? Who can do the math. Yeah, 32 years old. That goes against him in spades. In spades against him. Because uh, he died in battle, and all the Christians say, See? You see what happens? <laughs> anyway, that's, that's how that goes, and that's how it goes at the end of his life. Okay, we call him, Christians call him Julian the Apostate, um, he's also known in history as Julian II, right? the second Julian to rule in the Roman Empire, or however that goes. So uh, he was raised a Christian in Constantinople, and then finally in Cappadocia and other places, and he, this is the apostasy, he denied that eventually, of course, in his time he's got to be careful as he, as he finally comes to power with what his real, uh, what his real commitments are that he doesn't like Christianity, in fact he hates it, and he loves the ancient, he loves the ancient rites, the ancient cults. He wants to worship these ancient Roman gods, particularly the Greek ones, and get all that back up and running that Christianity has been slowly shutting down at the places of worship and uh, the intellectual uh, work of, of the Greeks and so on in different places. He will, he's into that and wants Christianity gone. He's raised a Christian but rejected in favor of what at least, you know, Modern scholars call Neoplatonic Hellenism. Uh, anything that has, especially from the ancient world, that has hell in it, like that, or Helen, usually has to do with Greece. It's a Greek thing. So the kind of, the overall Greek world and, 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 and the gods of it that Rome kind of comes into as well. And then, of course, the Greek thought of Plato and the, the ones that came after him, Middle Platonists. He's influenced by all that, and he wants to reject Christianity and move, move into that, not just himself, but the whole Roman Empire. Right, he wants to move it back, and he does that once he gets into power. He is definitely a scholar and a philosopher. He's probably the highest you know, as far as the Roman emperor is concerned or the emperors. He's vastly educated. Uh, writes a t- you know, in his very short period of time as emperor he writes a ton of stuff. Philosophical treatises, anti-Christian treatises, all kinds of stuff. So he's a major writer um, and, and, a, and a significant scholar for his time for sure. Um... He ends up taking a position in the Roman army, Something in the, the, because there are various armies in Rome all, all the time, and they, are, they have different allegiances. One thing to think about, especially the Western armies, are largely pagan. They're made up of, of Germanic peoples and things like that. They're not, they're not Christians. They worship the old gods. And as Christian emperors come in and start shutting down pagan worship in different ways, that makes a lot of the army mad. And you don't want the Roman army mad at you if you're in power in Rome. You want them on your side. That's how you maintain your control, is with power, the threat, the force. Uh, So thinking about the the fall of paganism and the rise of Christianity, nobody hit a switch. It's like, wham! Oh, okay, now everyone's Christian. Great. It's not like that. It's, It's centuries, right, generation after generation after generation after generation of faithful Christians fighting against in different ways these ancient rites of ancient Romans, or whatever else. All the different kind of um, pagan religion that we talked about a couple a couple weeks ago. Number four. Pagan worship had been on the decline, this is what we were just talking about, and Christianity had enjoyed a place of prominence until Julian II. I think I actually had a long quote that I was going to read there, but I left it at home. Okay. So this is unsettling for the empire. In other words, it's a little bit like take a different, a different historical uh, situation in England where this, under Henry VIII, there's a Reformation and suddenly England becomes Protestant. Well, it hadn't been Protestant before that. It had been Roman Catholic. It had been part of the Western Church and uh, suddenly it's not. Suddenly it's, uh, it's Protestant now. And, and then the Protestants start getting hold of the Protestant doctrine and teaching, changing the liturgy of the Church to match the Scriptures. And then Mary comes into power. And now it's back to Rome. It's not Protestant anymore. And now the Protestants are being chased around with pointing sticks or fire. Um, and and then after Mary dies, it goes back to being Protestant again. So it's kind of backing and forthing socially, right? That's really hard to do. And there's a little bit of that going on within the whole Roman Empire. This thing slowly moving Christian, then suddenly, boom, the Julian comes into town, and literally, and um, and that's a big deal. So it's unsettling to the Empire, but particularly horrifying to Christians. And uh, well, I'll give you the number three hash mark down to number five. So. Not long after Julian becomes emperor, he takes his armies, he's moving east because he's going to go fight the Persians, where he dies, and comes to Constantinople with his army, walks into town and says, open the pagan temples, close the Christian ones. Right? This, this, this is the Christian city. This is the, like, capital of Christianity on earth, is Constantinople. And he says, let's worship the uh, ancient gods now. And that is a huge offense to all the Christians and everything else, and they're horrified, and they can't stop it. And he's there with his army, what are they going to do? And so, you know, and they, and they don't know he's going to die six months later, right? Or a year later, however long it is, not much. They don't know that. He can reign for 30 years. And what happens when that kind of emperor reigns for 30 years, right? Anyway, and so on. So you try to kind of put yourself in a position where this guy coming into power is like, is, is, this, is this the great reset? Are we going back to what we were 30, 40 years ago or worse uh, before Constantine? That's how that one goes. Okay, so the three aspects, and then, as, as Julian comes into power, as he becomes emperor, there are kind of three ways in particular in which he really tries to establish pagan worship and culture. Okay, the first is by lifting the ban on, on uh, what I call it, heathen cults. I was just reading Philip Schaff, who's a great historian from the last generation or generation a half ago, and he doesn't say pagans, he says heathen. Let's use that word. Uh, which means the same thing, right? Um, the, 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 Not the Christian God, not the true God, but some other gods, in particular ancestral ones that have come uh, from the past. These are the heathen who continue to worship the old gods, and not the true God, or the Christian God, or so on. That's what the word pagan and heathen both mean. So he lifted the ban on pagan worship. So it was banned. You're not allowed to do it, um, and but people still did, of course. And some certain cities are like, just just like in you know Portland, say we're a sanctuary city. Hey, all you homeless folks, come on in here, right? It doesn't matter what the federal government says. It doesn't matter what the state government says. This city's doing it this way. That okay, That's always been the case. There's always a balance of power between city and whatever kind of larger state. And there are plenty of cities that are like, oh, this is cause the empire's trend is to go Christian. Not here, baby. We worship the old gods here. There are plenty of cities just, just like that. Uh, but he lifts the, uh, the ban. Secondly, he funds the cults. He funds the, you know, he gives imperial money, taxation, to now run these temples and, and other things. That, of course, they've been cut off from that. All of that money had been taken and given to the apostolic church, right? The bishops of all been, and that's, of course, every time that happens, There are always strings and connections there. Always, right? So the Christian church kind of got used in the last 30 years to getting this money, and suddenly now they're getting taxed instead of getting money, and the money they're getting taxed is going to open and rebuild, number three, rebuild and repair all these pagan temples that either been converted to churches or destroyed or whatever else. It's like suddenly Christians are getting taxed to rebuild those temples. Okay, so there's the kind of three-pronged approach. Lift the band Give money to these, the, the priests and so on of these pagan temples and charge the Christians and everyone else to rebuild them. And, and that's all around the empire, right, all through the Roman Empire. I'll pause for questions before I do number five, which is then not, not just how he establishes kind of pagan worship and cult practice, but how he attacks the Christians as well directly. So, any, any thoughts on the establishment and the reestablishment of kind of pagan worship? Than through the Roman Empire that had been phased out over the course of a few decades, really of Christian rule under Constantine and his sons. So, the quote that I was going to read you um, a minute ago that I didn't have has to do with um, basically like the Christian cancel culture of the fourth century, right? the same kind of thing we're dealing with now, where if you, hey, if you're going to step up and you're going to you're going to support the worship of Apollo or or Sol Invictus or whatever, then you're going to kind of pay a social price for that in the rising Christian Roman world, right? Uh, There's a social pressure that comes with the rise, just like there's a social pressure the other direction on us now, right? So as Christianity rises in the hands of Constantine and the sons and the social realities, Christians kind of get a social clout, and that kind of is part of the destruction and, and, and demolishing of pagan worship and paganism is that there's a social movement that comes as well. Um, and uh, anyway, that's part of the deal on the, uh, for the rise of Christianity, but also here for this kind of reversal of tides toward, um, toward Julian and his labors as well. So it's not just official policy, right? It's official policy mixed with the social realities, probably business and economic realities like we're seeing today. You know, if you think, again, going to the other direction, um, you know, Is it good for business to hang up a homo flag and, you know, a pride flag and say, yeah, we're on board with this? I guess it's helpful because a lot of businesses seem to do it. And you know what businesses are for? Making money. That's what businesses are for. They're there to make money. So if the wind's blowing this way, why? Sure, yeah, we're going this way too. That's that's business, right? They're not... Generally speaking, businesses aren't ethically grounded in what's right. We're going to do the right thing. No, no, no. We're going to do what makes money. That's the right thing for business. Even though as a Christian business owner, you should be asking, well, how should we rightly make money and what should we do with it? How can we serve the Lord with all this? It's not just to make money, but the primary function of a business is to make money. That's all for free. No money there. Okay. Um, Number four then, under number five. So five, the three aspects of the promotion of Greek and Roman ancestral gods. Number four, Julian's reforms of paganism, that's the pagan temples and their functions, largely aped the development of the Christian church. He took what had gone on in the last 30 years in the, in the kind of development of, of the Christian church, not only its structure, but its philanthropy, you know, dealing, helping the poor, and you know, the a long quote from others of his saying, <coughs> these atheists, these Galileans are doing a great job winning the hearts of the people because they care for them. They help them out, so let's do that too. Let's do what they're doing and do it better. So essentially, Julian's trying to, what the scholars say over out Constantine, Constantine, out Church, the Church. Give it, give uh, not only kind of torpedo the Church, which we'll talk about in a second, but kind of take the very same things the Church is doing and bring them right over here and a knockoff version uh, of, of, an, uh, of a, uh, a pagan version of the same. Does that make sense? Uh, it's a little bit, a little bit like uh, how Christians in our time. Um, can't make real rock and roll music, right? There is no Zeppelin of Christian, like, it's, it's, it seems like it's almost impossible, that it should be. So they, we get, like, Christian knockoff versions of the music, right? We got the Christian versions, and they're clearly second rate. They're clearly copies, right? And in that sense, they're clearly deplorable and not worth our time. Um, but something similar to that is going on socially with Julian's reforms, where he's like, those Christians are doing it right, and he does the knockoff version of it. So anyway, if you can see these streams, they go different directions, but they're not dissimilar through history, and they're, they can teach us quite a bit. Number six. So some of the things that Julian does specifically to attack Christianity, to attack the church, and he does not again, there's no, there's no physical persecution here. There's no sword and fire yet, right? That comes with the Christian's. Later, uh, as we'll find out, which is deplorable, and there it is. But we'll, we'll get there maybe next week. But, you know, so he's, uh, Julia is not going to use the power of the state to persecute Christians uh, in a physical, violent way. He'll use the power of the state more, oh, that's the right word, um, subtle ways uh, to use the power of the state to attack Christianity, not just the sword and fire. Number one, fan the flames of division and heresy. So as, as Nicene Christianity settled in and the decisions as far as who is a heretic and who can, who can you know, head the diocese and so on, comes down to, was, you know, for the last 30 years it had been Nicene Christianity is preferred. And when Julian comes in, he says, oh, let's get those heretics back in. Right? And so he brings all the heretics back into the church in order to sow discord and problems in the church. That's important. Because right? <laughs> the church had been working on purifying itself. And now he's bringing back those impurities to, uh, you can imagine, make, uh, make problems within the church. I put Arians, anti-Trinitarians, Donatists, and there are more. Uh, but these are some of the heresies that this early church, uh, the Constantinian church, is dealing with. Um, you know, Again, we look back and say, oh, it was just a good time under Constantine. No, it's never been a good time in the church. It's always been a struggle. It's always been fraught with heresies and problems from the outside, problems from the inside. This time is no different with lots of problems from the outside. Number two. Julian's reforms and his policies excluded Galileans and atheists—that's Christians—from um, higher public offices. Okay, so you couldn't serve high up in the office in, in you know in public in, uh, you know, in, in the state publicly uh, in the military, but also in academia, in the schools. So you, if you're a Christian, you couldn't. You could teach. What he did was this very simply. He says, in order to teach something, you have to believe it which is interesting. It's an interesting way to like, approach education. In other words, if you're going to learn from the Stoics about Stoicism, you're going to learn from a practicing Stoic about it. Not from a Christian, not from a Jew, not from somebody else that are practicing Stoic. If you're going to learn about Christianity, you'll learn from a Christian who practices. Of course, he didn't want anyone learning about Christianity and that wasn't the point. The point was to take Christians who'd, who had, over the course of the last few generations, had not only mastered the Greek, you know, the Greeks, right, all, all, all the writing, but, but had brought it into their own service in letters and in, in, uh, in, in dialogues like Plato had written. Christians are writing these things. They're taking over that classical literary tradition. And uh, Julius says, stop. You're done doing that. It's back in the hands of pagans, no longer Christians, who are just, you know, basically appropriating that Greek and, and Roman uh, literary background to themselves, to, to the service of Christianity. So he stops that. That's important. Um, where do I go here? Okay, number three. But this is an interesting one too, favored Judaism and tried to rebuild the Jerusalem temple to restart the sacrifices. Thinking that itself would undermine the Christians because so much Christian apologetics is, do you see, because the, the temple area is still there destroyed. For hundreds of years the temple sat fallow and the Christians said, see, see, Jesus said it would happen and it happened in that generation it's been that way since. And Julian says, oh yeah, let's rebuild that again, sacrifices, go in and see what the Christians say then. Okay, so interesting, uh, dispensationalists can take their leaf out of Julian's book if they want to. And then finally, levied heavy taxes on the church, which were used to rebuild pagan temples. So instead of getting money from the imperial government, they're getting money taken from them and put back into these other um, uh, cults, right, religious uh, worship practices that are anti-Christian and pagan. Okay, pausing for any questions after that. So you can see he's not only supporting pagan worship and really making it grow, but he's also torpedoing Christianity in any number of ways. And this is just like a little thumbnail of all the work in a very short period of time, right? He doesn't—he—he's not in office very long, but he does a lot of reforms that are important and like hurt quickly. How far did he get in rebuilding at the temple in Jerusalem? He didn't. Didn't get anything going on there, uh, but he tried. And he wanted, yeah, he wanted to, and he wanted to kind of, you know, even, even the Judaism within the, within the broader uh, imperial lands, he wanted to get more of that going too, because, of course, Judaism and Christianity have a hard time getting along, right, uh, historically. So, uh, yeah. Could, um, going back to 5 4 and the knockoffs that you were saying, yep. do you have specific examples? or? So, the, yeah, or sure. Somewhat specific. Yeah, the examples are basically, where did I put that in here? That list that I put, Episcopacy, I know my eyes aren't working. Um, um uh, two. Yeah, right. To the, the, episcopy, the art, the letters, philanthropy, particularly the organization of the church. is like, man, that's a really effective organization. The Reformation's up against that, too, by the way, because most of the Reformation says, we don't think this order of the church is right. It's not biblical, the bishop, you know, the rule of the bishop. But Julius said, hey, that works really well. Let's do that. Um, and I mentioned the, the philanthropy, right, um, taking care of the poor and stuff. He's big into that, and then aping the church. Um, the, you know, even the offices of the church, the teaching exposition of Scripture. Like he says, okay, let's get expositors, but instead of Scripture, we'll use these ancient myths from the Greeks. And so he really just picks up a lot of a lot of those things. There are three examples there: is teaching structure, and uh, and then like you know, public interface, right? PR and, and, and helping people are three Welfare of them. State What's that? Welfare, state, and. yeah. Um, yeah, good. So that's, that's at least three of them. and there, I'm sure there are many more, right? Because he, he kind of takes the model here and says, man, this thing's really working. Let's make it work for us. right? Let's take it over and, and mimic all those things. Any other questions? That's a good one. Okay, the last thing here then, the demise of Julian. All, all right. right, number one, proudly off to subdue the Persians, right? So he had been a very, he had been, a, a, very, he'd been a, a successful general in the West. Fighting the Germanic tribes and stuff, and he of course had no personal experience leading men at all. He was a scholar. He was an intellectual. He wasn't. He wasn't a leader of men, but he picked up Julius Caesar and just read Julius Caesar and read Julius Caesar until he learned how to be a general. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, that's, that's, so there's something for your classical education. You can read Julius Caesar and go lead men and win wars um, if you have the kind of skills that Julian did. And Julian was by far a gifted man. By every, every account, he's vastly gifted. Uh, so he gets it enough to pick up books written, you know, letters written by Julius Caesar and learn how to be a general and command men and win win battles. So, um, anyway, he's, he's, he has that background from his experience in the West before he was emperor. And as emperor, he wants to be, the, he wants to be Alexander, right? He wants to be Caesar. He want, he's, he's of that ilk. He wants that kind of, like, international all-through-time fame. And so he, he marches to the east to, uh, you know, give it to the Persians. And... He gets struck by one of their arrows when he's in battle, so it ends up dying pretty quickly. After that, 32 years old, Julian is cut down. And again, this is this is an, you know this is like a a PR bullet point against him. Do you see what happens when you oppose God? You go into battle and die. You get you get cut down, and all of your pride and all your hubris comes to nothing. And, this is, I think, the next one, yeah, the pagans really, you know, there's a pagan movement, and, and people like him, and, and pagans are writing about him too. Uh, just making sure you don't understand, paganism is not done, and uh, not done in the Roman Empire. He's stoking it, uh, but when he dies, there's no one of his caliber to step in and, and keep that going. Nobody, in fact, his, his generals that he's fighting, they're fighting under him, they say, hey, can you become emperor and lead us out of Persia and not have the whole army die? And they're like, no, you <laughs> can't do it. And so I think the guy's name is Jovian, a Christian uh, general of his, says, I'll do it. And he kind of, he does lead them out of Persia, and then they kill him. I think like generals, he he dies under very suspicious circumstances before they get back to Constantinople. And then there's, you know, a situation develops, which we'll maybe talk about next week, or leads us to really the the thorough Christianizing of the rest of the empire, right? Finally getting rid of the rest of, most of, the, the paganism that occurs after this. Right. So, uh, so Julian, with this very short reign, is impactful, for sure. And to this level, the Christians thought we were going one direction. Hey, all right, guys, we got the empire, we got the emperor, things are going great, right? Wrong. Because the next emperor is like, oh, well, he just, he just did not about to face. Right? He just turned all the way around, he's going the other direction, and taking the empire with him. And all these perks that we thought we had as Christians in this earthly kingdom and all the benefits that they did have are taken away. That's a, that's a scary and unsettling time for Christians, but an instructive time, especially for us, as we have many benefits. And we have many things that we hold dear on this earth, and as we're studying idolatry, one thing that we'll find here, this, I, I, I'll close with this, is the struggles, there's, there's always a struggle in the Christian heart with idolatry. There's always a struggle in the Christian church with idolatry. But the nature of it, or the, the impact of it, isn't always the same. Right, the structure of that or what they're after. So if you think of the church before Constantine, um, what kind of earthly goods did the church have? Not, not a lot. Not a lot. Right? In fact, they had to hide in, in the caves underneath Rome and bury their dead down there because they couldn't do it publicly. Right? They didn't have stuff. As soon as Constantine comes into power and says, now the Christian church is his baby and this is going to grow, now there's all kinds of vested interest in money and property and power and all that. and That becomes an idol for the Christians, right? The idols themselves, these gods that the pagans worship, are slowly being put down, but at the same time, the idols of the Christian heart are coming up because they have access to power and to land and all the things that men strive for and try to keep, just like your 401Ks, right? Your retirement programs, your health, and and your your financial security that you grab onto. And if someone comes near, man, you better watch out. So watch out for the idols of our hearts. And this trains in Christianity from Before Constantine to after Constantine to me is massively destructive for some of the problems that come when we have vested interests in the here and now, which we should have. God's put us here in history, and so we should have our connections to history and care about it, but not as idolaters, as faithful Christians. And as faithful Christians, we say, open-handed, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. In your life, in my life, he gives and takes away. And what is it? Cursed be the name of the Lord? Well, if you're Job's wife, that's what it is. But Job says it differently, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Think about, of course, Job himself. It's not just his 401k plan that got taken away. That certainly got taken too. Everything got taken from that man. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think the Christian church needs to learn that same lesson, and otherwise it's idolatry. It's something else we're pursuing rather than God or over God or beside God or in his face, as the commandment says. So, anyway, there's a, there's a lesson on Julian, the apostate. The short reign, but important reign of Julian. Um, any, any final questions or thoughts? Settled it all. Good. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll move off into a little fellowship and prepare for worship.